1: 2 verse 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lamp- golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. And have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God.
0: Thanks, Kyla. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. I thank you for um, the ability to come here in a room like this to worship uh, alongside gifted musicians. and. Um, that we now get to sit under this teaching and I pray that in this time that Holy Spirit that you would just use this text and minister to every heart in the room. Um, I pray that you would meet everyone in a specific way, that you would in a fresh way remind us of your love for us, that we would regain, that we would comprehend, that we would grasp, that we would enjoy your presence and your love in such a way that transforms us from the inside out for our good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name that I ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Last year, I got the opportunity to hang out with some monks at a monastery, which was pretty cool. There I am. That is me with Father Jerome, who was the abbot. Of the Subiaco Monastery for 45 years, and he now builds coffins uh, for monks. He actually gave me the blueprints to those coffins in case anybody's interested. And um, Father Drum's a spiritual director, so before I left, I spent some time with him, and there was one question on my mind that I wanted to ask him. One question that I have been wrestling with for a long time. A question that if you're a disciple of Jesus, you too have probably either asked or one day will ask. And here's the question. How do I maintain my passion for God? Like, from my experience, it's easy to love God and have a passion for God in the early days. I remember whenever I first started following Jesus, uh, the word that people would have used to describe me most often was the word passionate. Uh, Before I ever got a title or a paycheck, I began to devour God's word, to listen to as many sermons as I can I did crazy things like literally bury my sins in the back of my parents' yard. I'd write every sin I could think of on a piece of paper and bury it in the ground, pray over it. I would share my faith with literally anything that would move or anybody who would listen. It's actually how I met my wife. Uh, I was working at the Buckle in the Indian Mall at the time. Anybody remember the Indian Mall cookie factory, huh? Okay. And so um, I'm sitting there folding jeans and my wife, it wasn't my wife at the time, but my soon-to-be wife walked into the Buckle. And right out of my mouth, the first thing I said was just like, do you know Jesus? It's pretty weird to look back and think that was like my opening line, but I could not help myself. I genuinely was passionate for God. And as I look back on that, I think about many of you, many of us, and how it really is easy, right, to have love for God, passion for God at the start. It's it's easy for people in a church to be excited in the early days about Jesus and his kingdom. But the question is, how do we maintain that passion? Like, how do we keep that love for God? Like, in a world where it feels like anything but a church camp, in a world where we're filled with disappointment and death and all kinds of distractions and things are vying for our attention, how do we, in the daily, like eight to five, mundane kind of grinding our life while raising kids and balancing budgets and handling conflict, how do we maintain our passion and our love for God? And in order to answer that question, I want us to, to look at Revelation chapter 2 this morning. And just to set the context for you, the Apostle John, because he refused to bow to Caesar as Lord, because he refused to worship anyone other than Jesus, he has been exiled to the island of Patmos. Which you're like, oh, lovely, like a vacation on an island. That's great. Like, no, think like Alcatraz. This is a prisoner Island that John is on, and while he is in the isolation and darkness of his own prison cell as an 80 year old man, he receives a revelation from Jesus, a message from Jesus that he wants to deliver to the seven churches in Asia, churches that are facing two major crises. One, or two major problems. One is they're facing crisis, they're facing physical persecution. Because of their faith, they are being literally uh, arrested, tortured, and murdered, they're being thrown to lions. So that's a threat to the church. But an even bigger threat to the church at this time is not a crisis, but it's a complacency. As you read through Revelation, you're going to see that Jesus' primary concern for them and with us today is not physical persecution, but it is a spiritual apathy. See, for the people in Revelation, Christianity no longer worked for them the way they thought that it should work for them. And so they become complacent and begin to compromise. And it's in this place of compromise, and the crisis and the complacency, Jesus writes a letter to these churches for the purpose of showing them what a healthy church actually looks like. And he starts with the church in Ephesus. And here's a quiz for you. Does anybody know who planted the church of Ephesus? Anybody know? The Apostle Paul. Very Good. He then handed it off to Timothy. Timothy was beheaded, and then the Apostle John took it over. And here's a fun fact for you. I actually did not know this until I began to study for this series. Guess who was a member of the church of Ephesus whenever the Apostle John was the pastor? Mary. Yeah, the mother of Jesus was a member of the church of Ephesus while the apostle Paul was there. Like, can you imagine how cool that would be? Like, especially during like, you know, the Christmas season, whenever you're singing songs like Mary, did you know? It's like that your baby would one day walk over however it goes. Right. It's like, yes, actually, I did know. Um. It's like, that would be really cool, but, but, but that's not where we are now. Like, the Apostle John is no longer the pastor of Ephesus. He has been exiled to Patmos and he, Patmos, and he receives a word from Jesus to be delivered to the church of Ephesus. And here is the way it starts. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. There are These are the words to him who holds the seven stars, that's talking about the angels, who are kind of the guardian angels over the churches, in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, the lampstands he refers to here is the church, okay? And, and by the way, when you read Revelation, there's a bunch of weird like images, and that's because this is apocalyptic literature. The word Revelation literally comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get our English word. Apocalypse. Very good. And when we think of apocalypse, what do we think? Doomsday. We think of like zombies attacking, aliens invasion, like, you know, like on uh, Independence Day. But it's not what those in the first century thought of. When they thought of the apocalypse, they, they thought of a much more inviting word. They thought of the word literally unveiling. That's what apocalypse means. It means an unveiling. So they thought of like something that would happen whenever you pull the cover off of the box or when you peel back the curtains to to see what's behind the stage. And that's what Revelation is about. He's showing you. He's saying, look, you think that all that's going on is what you can see, touch, feel, hear, but there's way more going on than that. There is an unseen spiritual reality. One of the first things Jesus reveals is this wonderful reality that he says, I am not far removed from my church. I've not withdrawn, I'm not distant, but even though you cannot see me, I am actually among the lampstands. In other words, I am present. I am with you right now, no matter what you are facing. He goes on and he begins talking now to the church of Ephesus and he says this in verse two, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And you have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name. And you have not grown weary. And so Jesus starts his letter. And he says, here's four things I want to praise you for. Here's four things that I love about this church. And by the way, what Jesus loved about that church is the same thing Jesus would love about our church. What I'm about to share with you are marks that if we're going to be a healthy church should also be true of us. So what Jesus says first is what I love about you is I love your perseverance. I mean, these people are facing incredible persecution. They're actually, at this time, they were under an emperor who was so wicked and hated Christians so much that he would roll them in tar and then light them on fire like a tiki torch in order to light his parties. Like, this is what they're living in. Like, people are literally losing their lives because they align with Jesus. And yet, despite this horrific reality, despite the hardships, Jesus says, you have not grown weary. You continue to persevere, and I love that about you. Secondly, he says, I love that you are a church that pursues holiness, In verse 2, he says, you cannot tolerate wicked people. So you're not just going with the flow. You're not being influenced by society. Despite the fact that the Ephesians were living at this time in an incredibly like, sexually corrupt culture that was built on materialism and all kinds of debauchery, he says, you are choosing to live a life of no compromise. And I love that about you. Third, he says, I love your doctrinal purity. He says, you've tested those who claim to be apostles, but they're not, and you have found them to be false. This is a really big deal because in Acts chapter 20, in Paul's farewell address to the church, before he goes on his next missionary journey, he said to the Ephesian elders in verse 29 and 31, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise from within and distort the truth in order to draw people away. So, Paul says, be on your guard. The pastors in the church of Ephesus took Paul's words seriously. And so all of these years later, there's still a church that is theologically sound. Finally, Jesus says this in verse 2, I also love your hard work. The word for hard work here is a strong Greek word. It literally means to labor to the point of exhaustion. So this is not a lazy church. This is not a low-energy church. These people are serving, and they're caring for the poor. I mean, go read about them. They're, They're making disciples, right? If they had missional communities, they're multiplying those missional communities left and right. They're diligent, sacrificial, hardworking people committed to the mission of God. And Jesus says, I love this about you. And at this point in the letter, I would imagine the people of Ephesus are feeling pretty good. I mean, can you imagine being in their place. Like imagine if this was happening here. This is Ephesus and we're like, okay, it's like an annual members meeting. And I get up here, the elders get up and like, okay, good to see everybody. Glad you're able to be here today. We got a letter from the apostle John. We'd like to read it. And you're like, oh good. I love the apostle John. Like actually it's from Jesus. Ah, even better. We like Jesus more than we like John. And just imagine like we begin to read the letter and you love what you're hearing, right? This is from Jesus to you. Like you are a holy church. And you're like, yes, thank you, Lord. That's true. You're a faithful church. You got glory to God alone. You're a hardworking church. It's grace alone, grace alone. It just kind of goes through this bit by bit, but then there's a pause. And I imagine the pastor's reading this and he has to do like a double take. Like, did I just read what I think I read? And he comes to this line where he says, from Jesus to you, yet I hold this against you. Wait, what? Like Jesus has a problem with us? Jesus holds something against us. What could it be? I have this against you. I hold this against you. Verse 4. You have forsaken your first love. In other words, your passion is gone. The fire is gone. The affection and the intimacy that we had, when you had that naive optimism, when you first sort of follow me, it's gone. Like, like you have forsaken your first love. Guys, this is a very big deal. In Matthew 22, Jesus says, The first and greatest of all the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is why in response to this. I love what Augustine once said. He said, Do you want to know how to live the Christian life? Here's what you do. Love God and then do whatever you like. That's a great quote. Love God and then just do whatever you like. like. How can he say that? Because what he goes on to say, For the soul that is trained to love God will do nothing to offend the one who is the beloved. See, the problem with Ephesus is not a works problem. On the outside looking in, they had a lot of great stuff going for them. This is not a works problem. Listen, guys, it is a heart problem. Like, they were doing a lot of fantastic things, but the heart was not behind it. They had fallen out of love with the Jesus who had saved them. And for some of you this morning, maybe you can relate to that. For whatever the reason, whether it be because of distraction or disappointment, or death of some kind or a disobedience somewhere along the way you have forsaken the love you had at first your passion is gone and how do you know if your passion is gone because the christian life will begin to feel much more like a duty than a delight and so you're here and man, I've praised God that you're here, but if you can be honest, your faith has become mechanical, fruitless, and frustrating. There's no joy, there's no peace, there's no excitement. You're just kind of going through the motions and hope that maybe one day if you die, it'll be when you're old and in your sleep, and then after you die, you'll just go to heaven and it'll be over with. And if that is where you are, I, I want you to know, first off, there's no condemnation for me if that's where you are right now. And secondly, I want you to know you're not alone. And I shared with you all how when I came back from sabbatical, you know, when I went on the sabbatical, in the sabbatical, I said, I want to hear God more clearly, I want to, or more loudly, I want to see him more clearly, I want to experience his presence more intimately, and honestly, like, I didn't experience any of that. Like, there were, honestly, like, for the majority of my sabbaticals, like, I don't even feel the presence of God in my life. And what I realized is about four or five weeks into that is part of the reason that was is because somewhere along the way, I had begun to mistake activity For intimacy that in my doing things for God I began to think it was the same as being with God now don't get me wrong like I never stopped reading scripture I've been reading scripture daily for years and praying and and fasting and, and all that but what I realized over sabbatical is most of that stuff I did because I wanted God to bless the ministry does that make sense Like I did those things because I wanted God to do something for me. So more than I just wanted to be in his presence and spend time with him like I used to do, I was always showing up and saying, okay, God, I'm going to do this so now you will anoint me. I'm going to do this, God, so now you'll give me this thing that I really think I need to be happy because you're not going to be able to do for me what that thing can do for me. And maybe that's where some of you are right now. You started out so strong and so passionate, but that passion has begun to fade. Like the church in Ephesus, you have forsaken your first love. So this gets us back to the original question. How do we maintain our passion for God? How do we stay in love with Jesus over the long haul? And let me tell you what some people will tell you. Some people will tell you this. They'll tell you that if you are going to remain in love with God, here's what you need. You ready? You need like a super Pastor. Because everything rises and falls on leadership. If you're going to maintain your love for God, you need a really, really, really good pastor. Which, for the record, I would much rather have a good pastor than a crappy pastor, just to be clear. But, remember who founded the church in Ephesus? The Apostle Paul. Can we all agree, he was probably a pretty gifted leader. Like, he was... The single greatest missionary outside of Christ. Like, like he's the greatest church planner of all time. And then after Paul left, Timothy took over. You guys heard it first and second Timothy? Those are books of the Bible, like named after Timothy. Pretty solid leader. And then after Timothy, you have the apostle John, who was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's also the one writing the book of Revelation. So just think about this. If a church can have leaders this good, but they still leave their first love, can I just humbly submit to you this morning that there is no pastor in the city or world that can ultimately sustain your love for God, no matter how good they are. Do we need godly, qualified leaders? Absolutely. Can they ultimately be the ones who sustain your love for God? Absolutely not. So this idea that if we could just find a church with the right pastor, then I'd be in love with God, that's a myth. Another myth that we tend to believe is, man, if, if, if I'm going to sustain my love for God, what I need is a charismatic church. Now, I'm all about charismatic. I'm all about the gifts of the Spirit. Don't get me wrong. I'm all about miracles. But, but some of us believe that, that, that the only way we can stand our love for God is to see these mighty works of God, to see these miracles. Like, man, if I could see God like move in and through our church in a powerful way like he did here in the Bible, I know I would be in awe of God and I would never lose my love for him. Again, that sounds Good, but go read Acts 19 on your own later today. The church of Ephesus, you know how it was born? It was born because the apostle Paul, its founder, was performing what the Bible referred to as extraordinary miracles. When the Bible calls a miracle an extraordinary miracle, that is like a miracle miracle. That's like a miracle on steroids. Paul is like healing people. He's casting out demons. And he's walking in such a power, such an anointing, he doesn't even have to be there to do it. So like, if you came to Paul and was like, hey, can you cast out a demon? He's like, I'm a little busy right now. But he's like, here's a handkerchief. Rub it on him in the name of Jesus and a demon will come flying out. And it actually happened. And the church of Ephesus, look, they're getting a front row seat to all of that stuff. And still, it was not enough to sustain their love for Jesus. Cultural impact. That's a third one. Man, you know, Jared, our culture is so wicked and corrupt. If we could just see the city transformed, if the leaders in our schools and our government and places of work would repent of their sins and turn to Jesus, then it would be much, much, much easier for me to sustain my love for God. Which, again, sounds like you know solid logic, but go read Acts 19. What happens in Acts 19? The sons of Sceva, they see Paul casting out demons. They're like, that's really cool. I want to do that. And so even though they didn't have the presence of God in their lives, they wanted the power of God. So they go up to this like, demon-possessed person, and they're like, in the name of that Jesus that Paul's talking about, come out of him. And the demon responds by saying, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then literally like, rapes these guys, and they run out of the city beaten and naked. As a result, listen to what happens in the city. This is Acts 19, verse 17 to 20. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all, the entire city, all were seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Side note, how do you know when revival is breaking out? People begin to openly confess their sins. Unprompted. A number of those who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly when they calculated, listen to this, the value of the scrolls, the total came to what would be equivalent to around $5 million in American currency. It goes on and it says this, in this way, the word of the Lord spread and grew in power. That's cultural impact. That is revival that took place right here in Ephesus. And yet 30 years later, it was not enough to sustain their love for God. A fourth and final thing I hear a lot is, like, if we're going to sustain our love for God, what we need is just good doctrine. You just need to write Bible study or to read just really, really, really good theology books. And if you'll do that, it will always maintain your passion, which, again, sounds great. But have you ever read this book? Go to the next slide. Anybody read this? How many? Book of Ephesians? One of you? Okay, more of you? Great. Good. Um, do you know who wrote this letter? Paul, do you know who he wrote the letter to? The church in Ephesus. This, there's no book out there with better theology than Ephesians, I can promise you. And this letter was written by hand by the Apostle Paul, who then delivered it to the church in Ephesus. They had the best theology delivered right to their front door, and yet it was not enough to keep them in love with God. Which I think should beg the question today, well, super pastors can't keep us from losing our love. If it's not great leadership, miracles, cultural impact, or doctrine, then what is it that ultimately will keep the fire alive? And fortunately, if you look back in our text, Jesus gives us three simple steps. He says, if you've lost your first love, if the passion has begun to fade, here's the three things he says to do. Remember, repent, and return. Remember, In verse 5, Jesus says this, consider, or a better translation is literally, remember how far you have fallen. You know, every Monday as a church, we have team sermon prep right here in the foyer um, where we come together and it's a way of helping me or whoever's preaching to better preach to this church, to better serve this church, to better love this church. And by the way, if you've not come to that, I would encourage you to come. You don't have to be a scholar you really don't like none of us really are and so but we come in there and we open the scriptures we eat some food and we just talk about the text and this past week we're doing this 12 o'clock right here on monday and alicia chambers who was here in our earlier service in the front row she said you know we read this line it says remember how far you have fallen and alicia's like ooh, ooh, i got something this reminds me of the lion king and i'm like oh this is going to be really profound great like this is why we do this but it actually was beautiful because she said, no, 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 like it reminds me of The Lion King. And if you watch The Lion King, which is the greatest Disney animation of all time. Yes. All right. Didn't expect to get an applause there, but I'll take it. Um, Simba, if you remember, is on the run and he's not doing well, right? He's not living up to his creative potential. He has forgotten who his father is and therefore forgotten who he is. His life is all out of whack. And at a turning point in the movie, Simba asks, can I ever go back to the way things were before? Can I ever make things right again? To which his father appears and says, yes, and here's how. Remember. Just remember. And see, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you want to recover your passion, you want to get back to the way things were before, all you have to do is Remember. We'll remember what? Specifically, remember, he says, from where you have fallen. In other words, remember how good we used to be. Like, remember how sweet it was when I first broke into your life? You remember the early days when all you needed was me? Me? You remember in the words of King David the joy of your salvation? Do you remember what path you were on before I broke into your life and made my love known to you? He says, you want to get that passion back? You've got to remember. And then secondly, he says, repent, which we think is a dirty word. Really, it's a beautiful word. It just means to change your thinking for the purpose of changing your life. He says, you want to get your passion back. I mean, shift your focus. Some of you, you've been pursuing these other lovers because you just, you believe that they're the ones who's going to finally fulfill you. Whatever that thing is, whoever that thing is, and to repent means, no, 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 like, turn back. like, Like, quit chasing after these things that will never give you the salvation and satisfaction that ultimately I can give you. And then lastly, he says, remember, repent, and return. Do the things you did in the beginning. What's he talking about here? If you want to regain your passion, do the things you did when you first fell in love with Jesus. When I read this earlier this past week, I couldn't help but think about when I first started dating my wife. I think I've got a picture from our very first date. There we are. That's us. That is my real hair, by the way. Um, We went to the Hard Rock Cafe to see Blindside in concert, and it was pretty epic. Um, So... I don't know. I I would imagine the same would be true for you when you started dating your spouse. What did you do when you started dating? You spent so much time together, like a sickening amount of time together. Like if you were a friend of that person, like an annoying amount of time together. I remember my wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, would come over. We would hang out till like 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock in the morning. I can't even stay up till 930 right now, by the way. True story. I don't know what that's about. But back then, I guess I was so in love, like I'm just like wide eye and bushy tail, one in the morning, and then Megan would drive home, and we'd talk on the phone while she's driving home to Halliday, Arkansas, and then she'd get home, and I'd be like, all right, you hang up. She'd be like, no, you hang up, <laughs> and I'm not going to hang up, not going to do it, like you got to hang up, you know, it's like, no, somebody hang up, right, like just stop it but you can't because in the early days, like, man, you just want to be together. And the more you're together, the more your love for one another begins to grow. And the exact same thing is true when it comes to Jesus. The more you grow, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you will grow in love with Jesus. You say, well, how do I spend time with Jesus? He ain't physically here. He's only here in spirit, and that is why you need the spiritual disciplines. You need to spend time in scripture, time in prayer, time fasting, silence, solitude, doing the things that you did in the beginning that stirred your heart towards God. Guys, you need to do things like plugging into community. I I talk to people more and more who are saying things now, like post-COVID, like, I want Jesus, but I don't want the church, and I can be a Christian And I don't, but they'll say things like, I I know I can have a relationship with God and I don't have to have a relationship with the church. And I'm like, that's true. You can have a relationship with God and not have a relationship with the church, but you're not going to have a very intimate relationship with God. If you don't have an intimate relationship with the church. And you're like, where do we get that at? Well, the Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. I don't know how you do relationships, but, but for me, like if I want to be physically and intimately close to my wife, I need to be physically and intimately close to my wife. Like, like we need to be in each other's presence. So you want to grow up, like, plug into community, like practice these spiritual disciplines that God has given us as a means of grace to experience his love. And if you're like, heard that before, like, heard it, but here's the problem. Like, I don't want to do that kind of stuff. Like, I don't enjoy that stuff. Like, like yes, I know I need to read my Bible, but social media is way more compelling I know I should pray, but, but man, I, I can't sit still when I do that. Like my mind's distracted. I want to fast, or I want to want to fast, but I also want to snack all day. Or, yeah, I know, like I, I, I should want to get into community, but those people all have germs, and they're weird, and their kids are crazy, and they talk about stuff that I could care less about. And if that is where you are, I will just say this. If you wait to start loving God only when you feel like loving God... You will never grow in your love for God. Um, Think about it like this. Imagine you're out in the cold, and you're shivering, and you're freezing. And then you look, and there's this house, and there's these people, and they're around a fire, and they're warm, and they're laughing, and they're playing, and they're drinking hot cocoa. one of them says, hey, come in here and get warm. How bizarre would it be if you said, let me get warm first, and then I'll go in? They'd be like, no, no, come in here and then you'll get warm. Like we look at that and say, that's so bizarre, and yet that's what many of us are doing today. God wants you to know, look, you you don't wait and get warm before you move to the fire. You move closer to the fire of his love, and when you do, over time, it will begin to warm your heart. And that is such an important word for our culture today because, listen, what our culture will tell us today is that you should not do anything that you do not want to do. And so if you don't feel like loving God, then don't love God. If you don't feel like reading your scripture, then don't read the Bible. If you don't feel like praying, don't pray. If you don't feel like plugging in community, don't plug into community. But please hear me, guys. According to the scriptures, that's not how love works. Love is not showing up when you feel like it. And that is because, and you need to hear this, whether you're about to get married or you are married or you're dating or whatever, love's not primarily a feeling. It's a choice. Now, are there feelings attached to love? Of course there is. But love is about a decision you make. And therefore, when you make the decision to love Jesus, if you will do this, listen, over time, if you will choose to love him, even when you don't feel like it, your love will begin to grow. And here is the promise. Look at this in verse seven. If you will pursue him, if you will cultivate this intimate relationship with him, verse seven, he says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the spirit says of the churches to the one who is victorious. In other words, the one who is pursuing me who is loving me, I will give them the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words, there's coming a day where you'll be fully alive, where all sad things will come untrue, and you will experience in full, unrestricted, without reservations, the love that you have been longing for. That is a promise to every one of us in this room today. But then if you notice before we end, there's not just a promise in this passage, there's also a warning. And I would not be a very good pastor or very loving if I did not read this warning. Go back to verse 5. Jesus says this. Consider or remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. But if you do not repent, here's the warning. I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? Think about it like this. If a police officer wearing a uniform... Let's people commit crimes. What would we do with that police officer? We would remove him. If a doctor who has his own practice refuses to care for his patients when they come into his clinic, what would we do to that doctor? We would remove him. If a church, if you get a church where nobody loves Jesus, what do you do with that church? Well, according to Jesus, in his language, you remove it. You take it away. Maybe, and this is just my own thoughts here. I have no proof of this, but maybe the church in America isn't dying. Like, maybe it's being removed because very few people in the church love Jesus anymore. Like, Guys, Jesus has given us everything. Everything. He has laid down his very life for us. Nobody else has done that for you. He accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. He paid the penalty for our sins, which is death, the death we deserve to die. Then he rose from the dead. He conquered the things we fear the most, death, isolation rejection. He conquered all those things. He conquered sin. He conquered hell. He has sent us his very spirit to come live inside us. The same spirit, Paul says in Romans 8, declares over us all the time just how much God the Father loves us. And in the meantime, while this is happening, the Bible is clear, and John gets a picture of this later, Jesus is in heaven preparing a place for you, which John refers to in Revelation 19 as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you realize the church is not just called the body of Christ, the church is also in the scripture referred to as the bride of Christ. And that's what everything is moving towards, towards this eternal wedding where we will be united to Christ finally and fully and in him experience everything that we have been longing for. In light of that wedding day that we are moving towards, I just want to say Jesus is not... Looking to spend eternity with people who just are like, you know what? Hell seemed like it was kind of a drag, so I just decided to come here instead. That's not the kind of people Jesus is looking to spend eternity with. Jesus does not want to spend eternity with people who just don't mind him. He wants to spend eternity with people who love him And they love him, listen, this is key, because they know how much he has first loved them. And that is the key to maintaining your love and your passion for God. Remember this, okay, we're almost done. Who is writing the book of Revelation? John. The one who labeled himself, think about this, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't label himself the disciple who loves Jesus, he labeled himself the disciple whom Jesus loves. Now, that seems a little pretentious, doesn't it? But when you look closer at John's story, what do you find? On the night of the Passover, on the very last supper, before Jesus is crucified, you have to think about this. Back in the day, like, there were like, tables and chairs. You literally, you were reclining like this right here as you were eating. And what does the gospel tell us? Where is John during the last supper? Literally his chest, or his head, is on Jesus' chest. Can you get an image of two grown men doing that? John's head is reclined back on Jesus' chest. He's leaning on Jesus, and all he is doing is just letting Jesus love him. The scene ends, Jesus moves towards the cross, and what happens to the disciples in his journey towards the cross? They all begin to disappear. Peter betrays or denies Jesus three times. Judas betrays him. The other disciples go MIA. We don't even see them in the story. And you get to the cross and there's one disciple left. And who is it? It's John. Which is a great reminder today that the first one leaning is always the last one standing. The first one leaning is always the last one standing. And so what does a healthy church look like? Well, in short, a healthy church is a leaning church. It is a church that begins to act like the bride that we are leaning on her lover. And the key to maintaining this love for Jesus over the long haul, it is the number one thing that Jesus cares about. This is why in John 15, he says, abide in my love. And how do we know, by the way, if we are abiding in the love of Of God. Simply put, we will in return love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and seek to love our neighbor as ourself. Those two things John would go on to say cannot be separated. In 1 John 4, 19 through 21, he says this, we love God because he first loved us. And then he says, whoever claims to love God, please hear this church, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And so what is a healthy church? How do we know if the crossing is a healthy, successful church? Is it a growing number of people on Sunday morning? Is it programs? Is it a fantastic worship team? Is it baptisms? Conversions? How do we know if we are a healthy church? And here's the answer. Because we will be known as a people of love. We will be increasingly growing in our love for God and therefore our love for one another. But in order for us to love one another, we have to first love God. And in order for us to love God, we have to first receive the love that he has poured out for us through Jesus. And so here's the invitation this morning, and I'm done. Please hear me. The invitation this morning is not jet out of here and go try really, really hard to love Jesus. The invitation is to let Jesus love you. Will you do that? Will you let Jesus love you? This is goal number one of a healthy church. Priority number one, abiding in his love. And as we abide in his love, Jesus says in John 15, we will begin to produce a fruit of love that will allow other people to taste and see how good this God really is. With that, I'm gonna invite the band to come forward and those preparing communion. And let me explain this to those of you who maybe this is your first time with us so you understand this is something that as a family we do every week. Jesus has given us the Lord's Supper, has given us communion as a way of tangibly remembering his love for us. And so we're going to have servers. They'll have their gloves on, and they'll tear off a piece of this gluten-free bread if, if that serves you. you and come and take it this way. The bread represents the perfect life of Christ that he lived on our behalf. It'll be dipped in the juice represents the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you want, you can come and participate in this. Come take it. If, if you don't feel comfortable receiving communion this way, you can receive it in the back. There are little disposable cups there you can grab and you can take. And what I would just say is this. If you're a Christian, even if you're not a member of our church, come and participate in this. This is a special grace. This is a very important moment where Jesus has set this aside for us to, again, experience his love in a tangible way. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, like I would encourage you, like don't come and receive communion. Like Receive the love of Christ for the first time. Maybe for some of you, you're realizing that right now. Like, man, I have religion, but I do not have a relationship with Jesus. Like, I'm really good at being good and doing good stuff, but I do not know the love of God. And maybe right now, the Holy Spirit is beginning to help you see that's the missing piece in your life. That's been the void. That's what you have been longing for, is a relationship with Jesus, who right now, even no matter what you've done, is moving towards you with love in his eyes. And if you today, for the first time, realize that, and you're like, man, I want to know the love of God, I want to walk with His Jesus, feel free to talk with, with me, Adam, Robert, uh, anybody here would love to connect and talk to you and pray with you about next steps. With that, let's stand together. I'll pray for us. When you're ready, you can protect your communion. We'll sing one final song, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for giving us your son, Jesus I ask that you do forgive us for forsaking our first love. I would assume in a room with this many people and online, there are those who are passionately in love with you right now. But then there are those of us who maybe have seen that passion begin to fade. And I just pray that, Father, that you would grant us faith like we had in the early days. Help us to remember where we were when you found us that you were the one who came and saved us. When we were unlovely and unlovable, you loved us. You gave us your best. Help us to remember that, to be quick to repent and to turn back to you when we begin to chase after other things that will never give us a salvation and satisfaction that only you can give us, Jesus. And it's your name that we ask and pray these things. Amen.